you may be seated, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. And we begin our study in the text of Hebrews tonight. I want to begin by talking to you a little bit about dictionaries. Dictionaries. You see, dictionaries used to they used to define our lives. Dictionaries used to be in charge. If you were a kid nerd like me, you may have spent some time or a lot of time reading the dictionary. Some of you guys avoided eye contact. We'll talk after. There was a red dictionary in my bedroom, and I don't think it was a real Merriam-Webster, but I like to think it was. And I just would look for animal pictures, you know, the little editorial pictures. That's my experience with the dictionary growing up. Now we use Siri when we, whoops, we use Siri when we don't know the definition of a word. Uh, we, by the way that we think and the way that we, see, she did it. The way that we think and the way that we live, uh, we define the dictionary. We decide what words mean and don't mean. Pop culture and reels and memes redefine words all the time. The meaning of words shift. It's what linguists call semantic change. Language has always shifted, and even dictionaries change. How many of you guys know about the OED? You know the OED? Yeah, you do, English majors. Appreciate you. The Oxford English Dictionary, uh, with over 500,000 entries, there are three editions. There's the 1928 edition that took, uh, I don't even, can't even do the math, but 40 plus years to produce. Uh, and then there's the 1988 version when they decided, hey, we need to take this thing digital somehow onto computers. And then there's the third version, which actually they're still working on, and they've been working on it since 2000. And here we are 24 years later, and I think at this point they're making revisions to the revisions and adding another entry for the word cap and things like that. The mighty Merriam-Webster Dictionary, my personal preference if you care about that, is 11 editions deep at this point. By the time your generation gets old and is finished redefining the most basic of words, we just may need five more editions in your lifetime. Whether it's because it takes 24 years to complete each edition, or it's because the times they are a-changing and the meaning of words is too, there may never be a final edition of these Famous dictionaries, because words change, and so dictionaries change. Well, here in our first look at the text of the book of Hebrews, we see a final edition. We see God's final word, his final edition disclosure of himself, and that final word is none other than his son, Jesus. 
So look at Hebrews chapter 1, and tonight we'll be in verses 1 through 4. Uh, Follow along as I read. The author of the book of Hebrews, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this. Long ago, at many times, in, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's pray. Father, uh, we've read your word, your inspired word, and now as we look into its meaning and understand the truth here, Father, work in our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Hebrews begins with a remarkable introduction. Uh, This strong paragraph is uh, 72 words in the original Greek, and it's structured as a chiasm, a fancy word for sort of a pyramid structure that helps reinforce some of the truths in the middle. Uh, This paragraph is oozing with wordsmithing and the elegant style that we talked about last week and the fancy structure uh, contained within. And so even its form, this paragraph, is reflective of the superiority of its subject. You see, this isn't, it was a dark and stormy night kind of stuff. This is the very pinnacle of New Testament rhetoric as far as intro paragraphs go, and it gives even the middle and end of books a run for its money. Perhaps alongside the Gospel of John, it's in a class of its own as far as beginnings go. And the concept at the very center of this grand entrance to the book of Hebrews is one subject and one verb, and it's in verse 2, God has spoken. God has spoken. This remarkable paragraph tells us the even more remarkable truth that God has spoken to us by his Son. You and I, in our daily existence, don't think nearly highly enough of the precious truth in this passage, of what an incredible grace it is that God has disclosed himself to us. And in his Son, Jesus, he has done so in a final definitive way. You see, in this digital age, a vast horizon of information and entertainment is ever before our eyes. And so we scroll and we steward and we sometimes wonder what's the point of all of this information, both good and bad, uh, constructive and not. And It seems only right sometimes to give credence to all of these voices that are calling out to us 
demanding our time and our attention and our rewatching because that was supposed to be good, according to your friends. And so we weigh and consider and discern and discuss and overthink stuff, good and bad, all while that which is most important, that which is uh, most significant, uh, that which is most glorious is left on mute. And it's the most significant voice of them all. And it's what we see in this text. God's voice to us in his son, Jesus. And what God has revealed through his son is worthy of our attention because it's the message of the unrivaled son of God and it's God's final word. Hebrews was written by a pastor to a people struggling with seeing the Christian faith as worth it. And so to these lethargic believers and to us tonight, the pastor begins to point out the unrivaled son and the tremendous implication in our text tonight and for really all of chapter one is not even in the passage tonight, it's in the beginning of chapter two and it's worth our consideration right now. Chapter two, verse one, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. That's the implication way ahead of time. That's what we need to turn our attention to. If there's a question about how to apply what we've heard tonight, that is it. Pay much more careful attention to what you've heard. And not just what I'm saying, but what we've heard about Jesus, the Son of God, the unrivaled Son, uh, the very Word of God made flesh. Pay attention lest you drift from it. And so let's look at this truth that God has spoken and how in a final and a definitive way, God has spoken through his son, Jesus. Let's look at it in three parts, three truths about how God has spoken through his son. First, let's look at how Jesus is God's final word. Jesus is God's final word. These four, first four verses give us the overall theological argument, in a sense, for the entire book. These first four verses are a microcosm for what the author of Hebrews is trying to do by way of argument through the entire book. He's going to show us that God has spoken in the past in many ways, and yet now he has spoken through his Son, and the way that he has spoken through his son and what his son has accomplished is far greater than anything in the past. Look again at verses 1 and the beginning of verse 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. I'm not one to mention Greek a whole lot, even though I've done so once already tonight. So this is... Cardinal sin, but I think you'll find this interesting. In Greek, excuse my Greek, this first sentence is alliterated. Uh, it, five words in this sentence 
are scattered throughout, beginning with the letter pi. That's right. You think 3.14159, some of you could do a whole page and a half. Well, Hebrews 1.1 shows you pi, and these five words can be even much more than the pi that you know. We don't get to hear the profundity of the pi in this sentence in English, but the truth in this sentence is still just as profound in English. You see, the truth is that God spoke to those who came before us in various times and ways, but now, in the era that we live in, in redemptive history, he has spoken finally and graciously and definitively by his son. And his son is his final word. Now, long ago, this phrase, long ago, the first two words in English, here isn't referring to the length of the number of years in between these two eras. It's speaking of the distinct difference between era A and era B in view. Uh, This era A, this time in which God spoke at many times and in many ways, Uh, that's one time long ago. And then the era now, when God has spoken to us by his Son. Now, before we talk about God's final word, we need to talk about the very baseline truth in this passage that we cannot let escape. And it's that God is a speaking God. God is a speaking God. God does not keep you guessing. God has spoken in very specific ways And we are to hear. Some of you guys I know are big NBA guys. You guys are on the gram or or TikTok or whatever helps you figure out whichever NBA team is practicing at at SAC, Student Activity Center. Right? You know what's up. You see whatever team's in town. Oh, sweet, the Celtics are in town. Let me see if I can get Tatum's autograph, right? Not even a Tatum fan. Let me just get his autograph real quick. Uh, sometimes you hear, oh, okay, the Hawks are playing uh, at SAC. Let me see if I can poke my head in the door, kind of look in the glass before I get kicked out. Uh, When you can talk to any of these players, it could be the benchiest of bench players. When even a bench player stops to speak to you and even pay attention to you and lets you take a selfie with him, how do you feel? You feel special. You had to like look up what his name was, but you feel special, right? Like you, you get to tell him like, hey, tell DeJounte, like the Warriors want him. Like he's not going to tell DeJounte Murray that, but you, you get to say it. You feel special because you've got a picture to post now and you've got a story to tell. And that fish is going to be that big when you tell that story, right? You feel special when somebody important talks to you. Do you see the high and holy God separated from sinners? He has chosen in his grace, in real time and space, to stoop and to speak with initiative and 
in abounding mercy and grace, the voice of God breaks the silence. And so this is a reminder that it is grace upon grace that the eternal God speaks. And he has spoken not just once. He has spoken, according to this passage, in many times and in many ways. And much of that, at least the parts that we needed for all of life and godliness, we've captured in the scriptures by his grace and in his providence. And we can have a copy of it bound between a nice piece of leather or on your app with different translations. And it is grace upon grace that you have that. So before we even get past the first couple of words, we need to see that. Now, he has spoken at many times in many ways. That phrase, at many times, isn't just the number of times. It's this word that actually more is portions or pieces. The idea here is that it's piecemeal or fragmented communication. God spoke in different kinds of portions, whatever he divinely determined was needed at the time, he communicated. But there's a sense of incompleteness to it. Kimi and I, we're in trouble. We're in big trouble. Because today we realized how much the boys are going to begin to eat in these next few years. And so today we, we fed them a thing that all good Asian parents feed their kids a little rice, a little seaweed, make sushi. And we started heating up rice, and we, we gave one of our boys some seaweed, and we said, all right, here you go. That's more than enough. And you turn around, and he's done. And then you heat up some more, and you give him some more seaweed, and, and he's done. And each time, we're, we're trying to ascertain, I think that's enough. I think that's, that's what he needs. That should be enough. He's got to wait till dinner time after this one. But you just keep giving it to him. Now, now God, in his, uh, in his providence and in his wisdom, knew exactly, though, unlike us, what to communicate. And in, any, in many portions, in this kind of piecemeal, fragmented kind of way, God spoke. And God spoke at many times in many portions, so to speak. This text also says God has spoken in many ways. He, he spoke as a voice from heaven and in the Psalms, in visions and dreams. He, he spoke with writing on a wall and he spoke on a fleece and he spoke from a thick cloud over the tabernacle and he spoke through a donkey and he spoke through his written word. God has spoken. It says here also, he spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Uh, now what's in view here is not just the biblical patriarchs when you think of the word fathers, but it's all of God's people through the centuries of the old covenant. It's our fathers in a lineage sense, in a family sense. And he spoke by the prophets. He spoke to our spiritual family by the prophets. This includes those whom we formally think of as prophets, those who were called of God to be a mouthpiece for him, who declared with their own mouths, thus saith 
the Lord. And then they spoke. And they spoke his very words. It includes those prophets. But it also includes all those to whom God spoke so that others also would know what he said. You see, those who weren't capital P prophets, but all those whose role was prophetic. You can think of so many individuals in the Old Testament who were not prophets proper, but who had a prophetic role. And we know that because literally what happened or what God had to say is in the scriptures. You see, God spoke in many, t- many times and in many ways uh, to men and women, and those words were recorded. And we have now the very revelation of God, and it is grace upon grace that we have that. Uh, God spoke to Abraham with cut-up covenant animals. Uh, God spoke to Jacob in a wrestling match. God spoke to Moses in the burning bush and to Joseph and Ezekiel and Daniel and so many others through dreams and visions. He spoke to Isaiah and Jeremiah and the twelve. God is a God who speaks and he speaks blessing and promise and he speaks judgment and justice and he speaks warning and wisdom. And we ought to listen. Many times and in many ways, God spoke and he spoke and he spoke. And then, for 400 years, God did not speak. Silence. God's people had wandered so far The voice of God was not for them in that time. We call it the intertestamental period. And then a few prophets came. And then John the Baptist came as as if a prophet, a wild man dressed crazy and eating locusts and honey. And he echoed the voice of Isaiah, the prophet of old from hundreds of years before and he said the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord make his paths straight and then later as he saw Jesus coming toward him he said behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world this is he of whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me Because he was before me. That is to say, John the Baptist knew that Jesus was the eternally existent Son of God. And he was the one who he was not worthy of even to touch his sandal strings. And you see, John the Baptist understood what we get to see now in Hebrews 1. That all of redemptive history and everything that God had done and was continuing to do, even those 400 years of silence, all of redemptive history had been waiting on this final word uh, from Abraham to Isaiah and now to John the Baptist, looking forward to this promised one, this Messiah, this Son. 
And so you know in the Bible, to be a son is just as much a title as it is a relationship. You see, this promised one, this Messiah, was a son. The son who would come to do the Father's will, the prophets would say. He would come and bring salvation for many. He was to be, 2 Samuel 7, the son of David. And then in Daniel, he was to be the son of man. And in the Psalms and other places, somehow he was to be the son of God. And now, in these last days, that son, the final word, has come. I want to ask you something. Did you know that we live in the end times? Do you know that we live in the end times? I think when you think of the end times, if you're anything like me, you think of apocalyptic movies. You think of the sky falling and the world falling apart. Maybe you grew up watching the, I won't even name the names, but the cheesy series movies. And that's your vision of what the end times are like. We live in the end times. You could turn to Isaiah 2 or Daniel 10 or Hosea 3 or Micah 4 or a variety of other places and see that we live in what Scripture calls the last days. The beginning of the end, if you could say it that way. What began the end then? What inaugurated these last days that the author of Hebrews is referring to here and the prophets all spoke of? What began the end? God's final word, Jesus. In his son who lived and died and was raised again to life, And with this Jesus now exalted to the heavens, the fulfillment of all that had been promised before has now commenced. Fulfillment, not in its fullness, but fulfillment nonetheless. You see, the author of Hebrews is not dismissing the Old Testament as if you should just take the first half out of here. But he's saying, and he will show us by example quite thoroughly throughout this entire book, and we'll get a grand taste of this next week, He will show us that the Old Testament is not to be thrown out, but it is useful, just like all of Scripture is. And it is useful because all of the threads of divine revelation, all of the times and the ways and the things that God was speaking to the fathers by the prophets, all of it comes to a head, all of it converges to a singular point in God's final word through his Son. One commentator says it this way, God's self-disclosure in his son is the climax and fulfillment of all previous revelation. You see, Jesus is the very sum and substance of all that God had said before. In his son, God has not just spoken, God has come. This is Christmas truth. On a cold February night. 
God has spoken in his son. And what does it mean that he has spoken in his son? He sent his son to live and to die and to be raised up again. And I pray that this truth warms our hearts to first ponder the grace that it is that God has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is God's final word. Secondly, in this passage, we need to see the fact that Jesus is God's unrivaled word. Jesus is God's unrivaled word. Look at verses 2 and 3. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom, he, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Let's stop there. These two verses take us further into what it means that God spoke to us by his son. They show us the superiority of our Savior and the depths of God's wisdom at the same time. You see, the significance of the, the very truth in this whole introductory paragraph comes not just from the fact that we have a final and definitive word from God. We do. It's that God's final word has come to us specifically by His Son. You see, the significance of the truth here is in who he is and the right he has to be God's final word. And it's in that also that God's final word finds its finality and finds its effectiveness and its glory. That God's final word is in his son specifically is a glorious thing. Let me ask you, what makes the ideal candidate? What makes the ideal candidate? The natural question would be, well, for what? Half of you just thought, well, not him and not him, and you'd be right. She was talking about ideal. For what? Uh, ideal candidate for the Oval Office or ideal candidate for a PhD in your field, or ideal candidate for your boyfriend. It depends what you're talking about, right? There are character qualities, qualifications, for what makes an ideal candidate, depending on what that thing is. And so God, in his final words, speaks through the perfect candidate to be his final word, and it's who? Jesus, his unrivaled son. You see, this son was not just some arbitrarily chosen messenger. He wasn't randomly selected for the show from the audience. He didn't audition for the part or fill out an application. No, Jesus is the rightful, perfectly qualified, unrivaled son of God, the champion of heaven. And the author of Hebrews here gives us overwhelming evidence for why we must heed 
not only his final word, but specifically his unrivaled son, Jesus. These two words are jam-packed with the supremacy of Christ. And in them, we see how worthy he is to be God's final word. But more importantly, we see, therefore, how worthy he is of our worship. We ought not just understand the truths in these four verses as if to just know better about words and think that we can understand a passage better. Uh, No, we must be driven in our hearts and minds, yes, understanding the words, but we must be driven to worship the Son of God, Jesus Christ, for who he is. There are five qualities we need to see here about the Son, who is God's unrivaled word. The first description here that we see is that he was appointed heir of all things. Appointed heir of all things. Turn really quick to Psalm 2. Psalm 2, we're going to do a lot of this in the book of Hebrews. That is, turn to the Old Testament Look at Psalm 2. This is a messianic psalm. What that means is it's a psalm, it's a song that was written, but specifically about a figure, a Messiah. And that figure was literally what was a promised one. And so this is a psalm that looks forward as much as it looks to the current day as the psalmist writes it. It's a messianic psalm. And in Psalm 2, verse 8, we see the truth that we see in Hebrews 1. But go back to verse 7 to see, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You see, this in in Psalm 2, and especially uh, verse 8, is what we see in Hebrews 1, that uh, he would be appointed the heir of all things. But we need to understand this specifically. When does this happen, and why does this happen, that Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 2 in being appointed the heir of all things? Wasn't he the heir of all things to begin with, if he was eternally existent? You see, this isn't that the Son of God had no right to the nations before. In fact, we'll see here in a second that it was through him, through Jesus, that God created the world. And so as creator, he had every right to this inheritance of nations. But what Psalm 2 is talking about and what Hebrews 1 is talking about is that it's after Jesus makes purification for sins What we'll see in verse 4, when his redeeming work on the cross was done, it was then that he was appointed. He was given to be the heir of all things. And we're going to see the importance of that sort of turning point, that turning of the page in history over and over again throughout Hebrews, that point in redemptive history when Jesus had finished all that he had started. He had finished and fulfilled all the promises with his death and then his resurrection and his exaltation. And at that point, he was appointed heir of all things. 
I think when we think of what it means to be an heir or have an inheritance, we think of spoiled people, right? We think of a friend in high school that rode horses or played golf or drove a Bugatti. We think of an heir, right? Trust fund kind of people. We think it's someone who doesn't really deserve their parents' riches or kind of takes advantage of it. Prodigal son style, right? Well, Jesus is the rightful heir. You see, Jesus, the Son of God, the one through whom God created the world, had every right and privilege to rule over the nations at any point. And yet, the point here is that it was after making purification for sins, after accomplishing salvation for the sins of many, that God the Father appointed him heir of all things. Philippians 2 says it this way. Philippians 2 verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that, Christ, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This is the unrivaled Son of God, the heir of all things. He's also the one, Hebrews 1, through whom he, God, also created the worlds. You see, as the eternal Son of God, he was the agent by which the Father created the worlds. Colossians 1.16 says this, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. John 1.3 says it this way, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. It speaks to the eternality of the Son. This speaks to the fact that he was not only there in eternity past and at creation, it was through him that God created the world. And how that works, we'll know in eternity maybe. But Jesus, the Son of God, was the agent by which God created the world. You see, this is the unrivaled Son of God. The one who was also God's final word. The author of Hebrews also says that he is the radiance of the glory of God. There's a built-in illustration here. You see, this is a light metaphor, either speaking of some kind of reflection, imperfection, or luminosity, some sort of effulgence, you'd like to say. And it shows us that Jesus, being of the same nature and essence as the Father, shines with the same glory as the Father. Now, that's a truth we've seen this year already in First John and in the Gospel of John, right? First John, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Jesus, as we've said in our study of First and Second and Third John, Jesus is that light made manifest. He, he is the light of God come into the world. It's John 1, 9, the true light which gives light to everyone 
was coming into the world. John 8, 12, that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What the author of Hebrews is saying here is that Jesus, the very radiance of the glory of God, is the glory and the purity and the life of God. And he was so made manifest to us. He embodied all these things perfectly so that we could see them with our own eyes or hear about them with our own ears or read about these things with our own eyes. The Nicene Creed, the old, old, old document in church history in 325 said this way, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. See, this is the unrivaled Son of God, God's final word. The author, the pastor in Hebrews, follows up with a related truth here. Look at Hebrews 1.3 again. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The idea here in the word imprint is an etching or an engraving or a, a branding of sorts, a stamping, most commonly used in the context of coinage. Coins, you remember those, right? The things in the back of your Jansport backpack, in the front pocket there, just jingling around a little bit. I mean, that's, that's old school stuff these days. You, you hate coins. We hate coins, right? Cashless society, coinless society, you Venmo everything, even... Even the, even the cents, the dollars and cents, you just send it, right? I've got a friend. He is my ancient coin guy friend. We all need one of those, an ancient coin guy friend. My ancient coin guy friend, he lives in, he lives in Simi Valley. And you would think, man, yeah, he would live in Simi Valley. My ancient coin guy friend. A friend from seminary, so you're not wondering where I know this guy from. Uh, he's a faithful pastor, a really great guy. But he's just, that's his thing. It's ancient coins. And it's awesome because it has to do with the Bible. He has shown me Greco-Roman currency of all kinds. And he has some, if I can remember correctly, that were the same kind of coin. And he showed me a a small pile of the same coin. And when you look at a small pile of coins from the ancient world, they look like a pile of coins that aren't from the same place. They all look different. They all got the same sort of likeness, but they're just a little bit different from each other. They, they vary a little bit. Uh, ancient coin technology isn't quite like what we have now. You see, that's the picture here in that Jesus is not just kind of like God. He is the exact imprint because he is of the very same essence as God, the very same nature as God. In every attribute and ability, Jesus is the Jesus the Son is exactly like the Father. 
One commentator says it this way, to see the Son is to see what the Father is like. Truly, for God to have spoken to us by his Son, who is the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature, is for us to behold the glory of God and the nature of God, and that is a great and gracious thing. And yet this Jesus, God of very God, the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature, he condescended. And he came to earth as a man. He did not count equality a thing to be grasped. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That, that's what the, the, the first century believers got to see, and they've passed to us through many generations. Jesus, the unrivaled Son of God, took on human flesh and in that became God's final word to us. And he was a living, breathing, final word. Finally, the author of Hebrews says this unrivaled Son upholds the universe by the word of his power. You see, he's not only the creator of the universe, he's also the sustainer. Everything that came into being by his word and also now to this moment is maintained by that same word. Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You see, if there's a comfort or an encouragement tonight that you need, because something in your life is going a little bit crazy or you're worrying about stuff or you're struggling with sin, if you are his, this truth is for you. To know that he upholds the universe by the word of his power and that you exist in that universe. And so he upholds your very life and your very love for him by the word of his power. Every molecule and mountain and man and woman is not only made by him and is not only now his rightful inheritance as the unrivaled son of God, it is all, we are all sustained by him and we exist to serve his purposes. And by the word of his power and in his infinite grace and kindness, the world is upheld and helped and given common grace and kept spinning. And yet not all now bow the knee to the Son as they ought. Not all now serve his purposes. Not all see this unrivaled Son for who he really is. And yet again, by his infinite grace and kindness, this unrivaled Son has made a way. He's made a way by his own blood for rebellious sinners to become sons and daughters of the living God. And that brings us to our third reality about Jesus in this passage. And it's that Jesus is God's redeeming word. Jesus is not only God's final word, and he's not only the unrivaled son of God, he is God's redeeming word. 
the very message he brought as God's final word, and the message that he lived and that he accomplished by his death and then by his resurrection was this, God's message of salvation for sinful man. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. The middle of verse 3 there. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Here Jesus' work of salvation is pictured as making purification for sins. This is a cleansing picture. This is forgiveness. You see, friends, before a God who is light, a God who is holy, perfect, pure, separate from sinners, our sins are as impurities, as uncleanness. Isaiah says even our righteousness, even our attempts at righteousness are as filthy rags before a holy God. You and I with our sin cannot be in the presence of God. Uh, with the kind of filth and uncleanness that we have, we cannot approach a pure and holy God. And yet here in Hebrews 1.3, we find grace. Uh, we get our first look at what we will see over and over in this book thematically. And it's Jesus, our great high priest. Jesus, our great high priest, making purification for sins. Jesus preparing a proper offering to cleanse us of our sin and uncleanness. And that proper offering, that right sacrifice, was himself. Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins. He died to cleanse us from our sins. He paid it all on the cross. And if you don't know Jesus tonight, all it takes is for you to respond in faith, to believe what he has done, who he is, and to give him your life, to turn from living in your sin, desiring the things of this world, and to instead decide, I want to live for him. I want to live in submission to him. I want to live... Uh, under him. He is the righteous ruler, the heir of all things, but I want to live willingly under that rule. It's what your friends around you do. That's why their lives are different. That's why there's a sweetness and a humility to the way they understand life because everything that Christians know and live by is all of grace, all given by God. And the baseline fact is this forgiveness, this purification for sins that we have in Jesus. After accomplishing this great work of salvation, verse 3 says that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. It's a place of ultimate authority and honor. Verse 2 told us that he was the heir of all things. And so rightfully so, he sat down at the right hand of God. It was finished. It, it was done. God's final word in Jesus, the unrivaled son, is the redeeming word now. The 
good news of salvation available to all of us. Notice there that he sat down. It's actually kind of translatable into modern terms. After you work out or you lift something heavy or maybe not as heavy, what do you do? You give it a rest and you sit down. You're done. You catch a rest. But this isn't just Jesus catching a rest because he didn't need a rest. This is Jesus fulfilling what would happen according to the scriptures. Psalm 110, a passage we will go to multiple times in our study of the book of Hebrews because it is, again, a messianic psalm, but it is one of the pinnacles of messianic psalm. Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, that is, Yahweh, God, says to someone else who at that point is referred to just as my Lord, someone that someone originally reading this wouldn't know who that was, but Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You see, now we know looking backward, it's God saying to Jesus, sit at my right hand until in eternity, at the end of the end times, I make your enemies your footstool. I put your enemies under your feet. I let you defeat them finally. You see, not all right now have bowed the knee. Not every tongue has confessed. But all will, willingly or not, whether proclaiming him as Lord and Savior or acknowledging him as Righteous judge. That's something that Philippians 2 captures so beautifully. Philippians 2 also echoes the last truth for us that we see in Hebrews 1.4 that we're going to look at more next week. And it's this in Philippians 2.9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name in Hebrews it's the name that made him much superior to angels that he inherits. Uh, that's more excellent than theirs. You see, Jesus, by the work he had finished and the salvation he had accomplished, was given a name more excellent than the angels, having become much superior to them. And whether this name is Yahweh or it's Lord or Son, that's up for debate for the scholars this is a name and it's also authority and power and glory that is now rightfully the sons as one who has accomplished salvation for all of mankind. This is not a change in his essential nature, but it's a change for him in position and in an exaltation. You see, a crucified and resurrected son made into a glorified and reigning son. He was, for a little while, made lower than the angels, the Psalms say, in his humanity and in his death. And now that his redemptive work is finished, he has been exalted to the highest place, that place at the right hand of God. We're going to see more next week of how and why it's so significant that Jesus is superior to angels as we look at the rest of chapter 1. In studying this passage, I was reminded of a, a parable. It's a parable we find in Matthew 21. And I just want to 
think about as we close our time both a bad example and a good example of how we must respond to the truth of God's final word, this unrivaled son. The bad example is in this parable. It's Matthew 21. In the parable of the tenants, it's called, Jesus tells of a master of a house who plants a vineyard and he puts a fence around it and digs a wine press and builds a tower and then he leases it out like a good landlord would. And he leases it out to these tenants. And then when it comes time for harvest, he begins to send servants to collect the fruit, uh, perhaps to bring back, perhaps to sell. And Matthew 21, 35 says this. We pick up the story in the middle. When, uh, 34, let's start there. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he, the master, sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, verse 37, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed them. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? The narrative goes on for Jesus to imply clearly enough for the scribes and Pharisees listening to understand that they were the tenants and the nation of Israel as a whole were the tenants uh, taking God's servants, the prophets, over and over and over and destroying them, killing them, stoning them. They were wise enough to be able to perceive these scribes and Pharisees that they were the very ones who would kill the son trying to take the inheritance, the son being the one who spoke the parable, Jesus. And now we know how redemptive history pans out. We are not the scribes and the Pharisees, but I believe there is a scribe and a Pharisee kind of attitude we can have about Jesus, the unrivaled Son of God, even as Christians. Even as those who don't reject the Son of God outright, uh, but who know him and yet take only the parts of him that we want. We can too be those who reject the unrivaled Son in our hearts, yet claiming his salvation and wanting all the blessings and benefits of the Son of God on the cross, but wanting nothing of the Son of God reigning in heaven over our very lives. And so that's a bad example. The good example is something that Kent Hughes speaks of when he writes about this passage, Hebrews 1. He writes of what he calls the Christian's experience of an ever-enlarging Christ. The Christian's experience of an ever-enlarging Christ. And this is the good example. This is what we ought to be like. He tells of C.S. Lewis's book, uh, a series 
really, but the book Prince Caspian. And he tells of the story when Lucy and Aslan are reunited and Lucy begins to wonder and look at Aslan as if something's different about him. And Aslan comes close, this large lion shining in the white light. And he says, welcome, child. Lucy says, Aslan, you're bigger. And Aslan says, that is because you are older, little one. And Lucy says, not because you are. And Aslan answers, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And then Kent Hughes says this, expanding souls encounter an expanding Christ. Expanding souls encounter an expanding Christ. You see, when we look at passages like Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, our souls should swell with worship. Our souls should expand with glory to God for his grace in his final word, the unrivaled Son. And with our souls expanding, our hearts swelling with worship, Jesus Christ should expand also in our view. He should be greater and grander and more glorious. I think that's what we'll find, and my prayer is, in the book of Hebrews. Kent Hughes says it this way uh, later in that text. He says, seriously considered, Hebrews will make us grow and find a bigger Christ. Let's pray. Father, would we find your son, Jesus Christ, bigger day by day? Would our souls swell with worship and wonder at who Jesus is and how he is your final and definitive word to us? How he is very God made flesh, how he condescended and came to earth so that we could know you. And not just so, Lord, that we could see you, but that he made purification for our sins, making it possible for us to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. So Father, help us to pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Father, help us, we ask, in this study of Hebrews, but Father, more poignantly, help us in our lives to see this ever-expanding, ever-enlarging Christ and how he rules and reigns in our lives and how he is worthy of our worship, both now in song and in every moment that we live. In Jesus' name, amen.